Last week, Simon came up and introduced us to the Gospel of John. Uh, I'm really excited that we're taking some time out uh, at the moment to track through this picture of Jesus' life on earth. You know, I've, I love the Gospels, the four books we find at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because they really are kind of windows into the life of Jesus when he was here walking around on our earth, before he went back to heaven, before the Holy Spirit was released in an incredible way here upon his church. And, uh, and it's amazing that we get this opportunity to, to study Jesus' life uh, together. Uh, so this is kind of intro part two. So uh, if you missed last week, this is a great week to be here because Simon's going to come again and talk to us about the Gospel of John. So can we hear it for Simon? Give him a bit of encouragement. Come and speak to us, friend. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Simon. Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you've given him, for the way that he handles your word. And uh, Lord, just pray that you would open our ears uh, and soften our hearts uh, this morning to receive the things that you want to teach us. Jesus, as we look at you, may we be changed. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Phil. Um, We're opening the Gospel of John, as uh, Phil said, to chapter... Well, this is part two, I guess, of chapter one this week, and the Gospel of John sort of stands alone as a gospel, Um, reason being is that the first three gospels, um, there are a lot of events happening. There's lots of stuff. It's almost as if those writers have taken all of the things that that they saw Jesus say and do and sort of crammed it into an account, whereas the Gospel of John, he only takes a small number of events and conversations around the life of Jesus, and he strategically puts them together in a way that we would understand them and like see full conversations. So this is why you're going to see a lot of conversation in the Gospel of John. And so it sort of stands alone as a gospel. There's lots of love in the Gospel of John. There's lots of romance. Um, There's lots happening. He even called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, And in his other letters, he talks a lot about love as well. Anyway, we're going to open up to chapter 1. And I'm going to read you a big chunk of Scripture today. Like I said, it's always a bit of a challenge when you preach from the Gospel of John because there is so much conversation. So as we sort of open up God's Word, it's hard to just take little snippets and just read snippets and then preach from it because it loses its context. And so I want to try and give you some context as I take this big passage of Scripture, and it's something like 30 verses or something like that we're going to read this morning. So you're going to get your Bible reading in today. Um, I am going to reread a portion of Scripture that I read last week for the sake of those who weren't here last week, Um, but I'm going to add a little bit more in. To this as well. So if you turn with me to John 1, chapter 19, it says this. Now this was John's testimony, John the Baptist. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. 
Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you were not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The sandals of whom I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, meaning God told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of of God. The next day, John was there with his two disciples. He saw Jesus passing by, looked the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus, turning around. Uh, Jesus saw them following and answers, what do you want? What are you seeking? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw him where he was staying and spent the day with them. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and he would follow Jesus. And the first thing that Andrew did was to go and find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, but you will be called Peter or Kephas. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and among who the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked, come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. Then he added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Everyone breathe. <sighs> we got there. <laughs> Today, what I'm going to attempt to do is um, basically take seven titles in the first chapter of John and try to explore what they mean for us. So I guess the title of this talk, if you're writing notes, is Are You the One? Are You the One? Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And Lord, we ask right now that you would speak to us, that we would walk out of this place just knowing you a little bit more, looking a little bit different. Lord, do something amongst us today in Jesus' name. We thank you for the weather. Everybody said, amen. When I was a single man, I was a man on a mission. On the mission to find the one. The problem was, when I was about 23, I was a youth pastor in a church. Being a youth pastor, you're sort of in front of people, and um, you have to go about things a little more discreetly. And um, how many of you know that dating in church 
can be a little challenging at times. Um, there are some weird cultures, right? There is some weird chatter. I mean, coffee means marriage. You know, you're like, <laughs> have you ever experienced this? Okay. You want to get coffee with someone, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, the church chatter begins, and then, you know, it's all like, you know, the ring's got to go on the finger and all of that. It's crazy, but anyway. Me and my friends, we sort of developed this tactic to get around these things. And we called it the pseudo-date tactic. Here's how the pseudo-date tactic works. Ashton, if you're listening, this is good stuff. Write this down. <laughs> the pseudo-date tactic works like this. You would arrange like a group hangout, okay? So you would like get all your buddies together, all your friends, and you would invite the girl that you liked. And then when it came to the day you, you would all meet up, conveniently you would arrive and you would apologize to the unwitting damsel that all of your other friends had canceled last minute. And at that moment, you know it was on, you knew it was a date, but she didn't. And this was your moment to try and figure out if this girl was worth pursuing. I remember employing this tactic a number of years ago, not on many girls, but on one in particular. Her name is Jessica Malcolm. She's sitting on the second row here. I arranged to get a few friends together. We got some friends together. They, you know, conveniently forgot or canceled last minute. And so we got together and we kind of had a date. I knew it was a date. She had no idea what was happening. This happened two more times until I eventually asked her if she would be my girlfriend, to which she accepted. And now she is my wife. I put a ring on it. Hello. So it works, Nikki. It's a real thing. <laughs> But I did all of that in order to find out whether Jessie was the one. I wanted to get to know her in an unpressurized environment where neither of us had any like kind of weird church, awkwardy pressure. Oh my gosh, now you guys are going to look at you too. So I did this in order to figure out whether she was the one. Now, in ancient Israel, in the times of Jesus, it was common knowledge that the Jewish establishment, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel were anticipating, expecting, and waiting for the one. Like a guy waits for a girl. So Israel was waiting on God to send this messianic figure, this savior figure. And so the establishment, the Jewish governing body rather, they send out Levites and priests to John the Baptist because they are expecting, they are waiting, they are anticipating this messianic figure. And they go to John and they say, so John, are you the one? Is it you? And John says, I'm not the guy. I'm merely pointing to the guy. And in fact, the guy is in your midst and his name is Jesus. He turns the attention from himself to Jesus. And then from this point onwards, it seems as though this question and this controversy around, are you the one, seems to follow the life of Jesus until his death. In fact, just a couple of chapters later in chapter three, we see Nicodemus, who virtually was the establishment, the teacher of Israel, seeking a secret meeting with Jesus in Jerusalem in order to figure out, Jesus, are you the one? Is it you? 
we are anticipating or is it somebody else? A few chapters later, we see the people of Israel following Jesus throughout the Judeo countryside, seeking Jesus in the same way. Jesus, are you the one? When Jesus is arrested, he stands before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, and they ask him the same thing. So then, are you the son of God? Are you the one that we are waiting for? He says, in so many words, I am. And they convict him of blasphemy. As he stands before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate says, so then, who are you? Are you this king? Are you who they say you are? And in so many words, Jesus says, I am. And maybe today, at some level, you can connect with the narrative of John's gospel. You can connect with the same question because at some point in your life, you've asked the same question. Jesus, are you the one? And maybe in a room this size with all of us here, maybe you're here today and you're asking this same question. Jesus, are you the one? Are you this messianic figure? Are you this savior? Are you this so-called son of God that everyone says you are? Last week, I referred to this way in how John puts his gospel together. He arranges it almost as if he is presenting a court case. And in his very first chapter, he calls four witnesses to the stand in order to testify about who this Jesus is. And then as we continue to get into the book, John then presents a body of evidence in order to demonstrate how this testimony is true, from changing the water into wine, from the feeding of the 5,000, to Jesus walking on water, to Jesus healing a crippled man by the pool of Bethsaida, which all culminates in arguably Jesus' greatest miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which then he enters Jerusalem under the cries of Hosanna. He is then crucified a few days later. Are you the one? In this very first chapter, I want to explore with you today what these witnesses have got to say about who this Jesus is. And the very first witness that John the Apostle calls to the stand is John the Baptist. He says, John testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Kind of a big idea for us to comprehend. It would have come much more naturally to a Jewish audience. The Jews, obviously, they had a temple. Even in that time, they had a temple, and they had priests who would mediate between God and people, and they would bring forth sacrifices. They would bring lambs and sacrifice at the temple, and God would look at that sacrifice and forgive the people and, you know, wipe their sins away. But in so many words, in John's reference to Jesus being the Lamb of God, he isn't saying that Jesus is the final and ultimate sacrifice that will remove the sin from the world. Sin from sinners, which is good news because I am a sinner like you. And Jesus came to remove my sin and your sin. Jesus stands as the ultimate mediator, as the ultimate priest between both 
divinity and humanity, God and man, and reconciles us back to God in the taking away of our sin. A few years ago, I broke my um, iPhone classic, dropped it, so I took it to this place in Putney, right? And um, I went in, and uh, it was a little corner store. I talked to the guy, and I was like, hey, so um, can I get this repaired? And he was like, sure, it's going to be 60 pounds. And I was like, how's 40? And he's like, okay, that's all right. We can do this. And I was like, this is kind of dodgy at this point, you know? <laughs> it's like, so anyway, this guy fixes my screen. And like, I knew this was dodgy, but anyway, I went along with it. So he fixed my screen. A couple of weeks later, I got the phone back, and I was still, like, sitting on a chair like that. And my phone like slipped out and fell on the ground, it wasn't even a high height, but the screen hadn't been fixed on properly. It kind of like came off a little bit. So then a week or so later, friends of mine said, hey, we just really feel like um, God's telling us to, to give you this new iPhone. And I was like, well, only if God's telling you, then do it. <laughs> it is better to give than receive. Hello. But <laughs> so anyway, they, <laughs> I get this brand new iPhone 6. But the point is that my new iPhone was so much better than my attempted repair job of my old iPhone. The point is, is that Jesus didn't just come to repair portions of our lives. He didn't just come to upgrade or improve portions of our lives. But he came to give us an entirely new life. He came to remove all of our sins and to give us a brand new start, and to give us a fresh slate. And this is what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God who removes and takes away the sin from the world. As far as the east is from the west, God sees the sin no more. You have a fresh slate. Amen? Secondly, okay, after John says this, the disciples with him, you know, his guys, Andrew and Philip, we talked about this last week a little bit. They're like, oh, well, we're going to go after this guy. So John's like, cool, do that. So they run after Jesus and they call out to him and they say, Rabbi, which is teacher in English, right? Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you staying? And he's like, why don't you come and see? We talked about that last week. And they had this amazing experience with Jesus. Jesus is the great teacher. Now, we could talk a lot about this. I guess we could say that, you know, so much of our Western civilization has been founded on the cornerstone of Jesus' teaching, arguably the greatest teacher of all time, moral teacher. Um, laws have been founded on his teaching, judicial systems, so on and so forth, literally turned the world upside down and how people relate to one another, do unto others as you do unto yourself, love your enemy, that sort of teaching is just profound. Nobody else has ever taught that, right? He is the great teacher. But maybe even more than that, as a teacher, he is a spiritual guide. And as Andrew and Philip sort of had this experience with Jesus, the eyes of their heart, their spiritual eyes, were opened. And they run back to their friends, Simon and Nathaniel, and they say, hey guys, we, we found, he's the, the one, the one, it's him. Their spiritual eyes have been opened. And this theme continues throughout the book of John. Remember Nicodemus, he talks about a physical birth. He's like, so how can an old man like me, like birth something? Jesus is like, oh my days, I thought you were the teacher of Israel. I'm not talking about a physical birth, I'm talking about a spiritual birth. Remember the woman at the well? 
uh, she was talking about physical water. Jesus said, I'm not talking about physical water. I'm talking about spiritual water, okay? A water that you will never thirst again if you taste of me, okay? The people were like, hey, Jesus, can we have some physical bread? Jesus said, I don't want to give you physical bread. I want to give you spiritual bread, okay? Remember um, the man who was healed, who was born blind? Jesus put the mud on his eyes. He healed him. He went to the Pharisees. They were talking about physical blindness. Jesus goes back to him and he says, I'm not so concerned about your physical blindness. I healed you, sure, but I'm more concerned about your spiritual blindness. Let me open the eyes of your heart. He is a great teacher. He is the great spiritual guide who leads us and guides us into all truth. He is teacher, rabbi. Andrew runs back to his brother, Simon, and he says this. Hey, Si, we, guess, guess who we found? We found the Messiah, the third title that Jesus has given in this first chapter, the Messiah. He is the one, the anointed one, the chosen one. This is what it means, the Christ in the Greek. Like Neo in the Matrix, you are the one, you know, kind of thing. The Messiah, the Christ figure, what does it mean? It means to be a deliverer. Moses was a messianic figure. He himself was not the Messiah, but he was a messianic figure in the way that he delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. He delivered them from captivity into freedom, from slavery into the promised land, from death into life, so to speak. And Jesus acts as this messianic deliverer. And he doesn't just deliver from a physical captivity, but he delivers from a spiritual captivity. He came to deliver us from spiritual captivity into spiritual freedom. He came to deliver us from spiritual slavery into a spiritual promised land. He came to deliver from sin and death. He came to conquer that once and for all and to lead us out from that place of captivity into a life of freedom as Aladdin did for Jasmine. Hello, it's a whole new world. I want to break out into song, but I won't because I can't hold a tune. Number four, he's Jesus from Nazareth. And at first, this title might seem as being irrelevant, but it's far from being irrelevant because it reveals to us something so deep about the character and the nature of God. Nathaniel rightly replies, Nazareth? Like, what good comes from Nazareth? Um, it's like saying what good comes from, I'll be careful, Hull? Is that, oh, oh, shoot, okay, no, okay, Blackpool? Okay, no, I'll pick on myself, New Zealand. How about that? It almost fell off the stage. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to anybody who's from Blackpool or Hull or from the north. I apologize. I'm sorry. Okay? <laughs> Nazareth was a quarry town for the working class. It was far from the bright and educated rabbis of the holy city in Jerusalem. Okay? Jesus of Nazareth. What, the Messiah from... No, he, he, the Messiah's going to come from Jerusalem, not Nazareth, Okay? which tells me a whole lot about the nature and the character of God. Jesus himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. God, Jesus, he came from humble beginnings. Even the text of Isaiah said that he will be despised and rejected by many. 
In fact, there will be nothing about this Jesus on the outside that would draw us or attract us to him. He was humble. He was plain. He was normal on the outside, which speaks to the humility of God. And it also is a great encouragement for each and every single one of us. Jesus, this Messiah, God's son, was born in a manger in Bethlehem and then grew up on the backside of nowhere in a place called Nazareth. It's okay if you feel like you're from a small town, if you're from a small place, if you don't feel like a nobody, because God uses nowhere places and he uses nobodies and turns us all into somebodies. God is good. Just this week, I was encouraging our staff from the text of Zechariah. And when the Israelites come back from the captivity in Babylon and they come back to Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the temple, and God says this to Zerubbabel through the prophet Zechariah. He says, I rejoice when I see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hands. I rejoice in the small things. I am not intimidated by them. I am drawn to them. I rejoice in humble beginnings, in humble origins. Nathaniel and Simon both have an experience with Jesus. They go off and they, they meet him for themselves. Jesus gives Nathaniel a word of knowledge, and uh, Nathaniel responds by saying, surely you are the king of Israel. This is the fifth title that Jesus has given in chapter one. You are the king of Israel. But in order to be a king, one must have a kingdom, right? And it wasn't like the Israelites thought. The Israelites thought that this Messiah, that this deliverer, this Christ, this messianic figure would come to Israel and that he would overthrow the Roman occupation and that he would reestablish the kingdom of Israel in all of the earth. But that's not what Jesus did. He established a kingdom, but it wasn't reestablishing the kingdom of Israel. Rather, it was establishing the kingdom of God. He brought heaven to earth. Paul later on goes on to say that the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy. And this is what Jesus established here on earth. In fact, when he stands before Pilate, Pilate says, are you then a king? And Jesus said, it is right that you say I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Do you not think that I could call a whole legion of angels to save me from this moment? But I shan't because I'm up to something behind the scenes. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is the kingdom of God. Yes, he is the king of Israel, but he is so much more than that as well. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Nathaniel also goes on to say, that you are not only the king of Israel, but you are also the son of God, which speaks of Christ's divinity. Not only was he born of a virgin, a, a human woman, he was born of a divine father. And this is the unique thing and the part of Jesus that makes him distinct from anyone else in all of human history, that he is both 100% man, but 100% God. Paul puts it like this, as he was trying to put words and oratory and verbiage to who Jesus is and 
what it means to us. He wrote, all of the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And then Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Which is a really smart thing to say, right? It makes sense. You know, none of us can see God. We can't peer into heaven and see what the Father's up to. But if you want to see God, if you want to get a picture of how God acts, how He behaves, His attitudes towards things, His empathy, His compassion, His his words even, then look no further than the person of Jesus. Because all of the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And it's in Jesus that we see this picture, this, this visible image of the invisible God. Lastly, Jesus responds to Nathaniel by saying, you're going to see much more than this. In fact, you're going to see the angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Number seven, in the last title of this first chapter, Jesus gives himself this title, Son of Man. And it is double-barreled. It is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, which is a prophetic word about the Son of God, this messianic figure, this Christ who would be sent from heaven to earth. And so it's a reference not only to that, but it is a reference to his own humanity as well. And I love this, that Jesus does not distance himself from our suffering. Jesus does not distance himself from our pain. Jesus doesn't distance himself from our humanity or our hurt. Which is to say that when you cry, he cries. When you hurt, he hurts. He's betrayed. He grasps our humanity. And because He grasps our humanity, He understands. He gets it. He bridges the gap between both humanity and divinity. The reference He gives with the angels ascending and descending is a reference to Genesis and Jacob's ladder. Jacob laid down his head on that rock and he had this dream about angels going up and down from heaven. And he called it Bethel, that place Bethel, the house of God, the place where he met God. And this is Jesus giving a reference to himself in saying that I am the point where humanity and divinity meet. I am the one who bridges the gap. I'm the one who's going to connect you to the Father. In fact, it goes on to say in John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man goes to the Father but through me, both fully God and fully human, bridging the gap for you and for me so that today we can connect with God and find right relationship with Him. Are you the one? Jesus, is it you? 
leads us to believe that we shouldn't just step out in blind faith but he gives us reason to believe in this Christ he presents his witnesses and he gives his evidence this Jesus he is the Messiah he is the Son of God he is the Son of Man. He is great teacher. And He's here today. And I wonder if you're in this place. You've never made a commitment to reach out to God and say, Jesus, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you make yourself known to me as Messiah, as Savior? 